How influential is the United States Congress in formulating U.S. policy towards Israel and the Palestinians and in constraining the options available to the White House? Is the bipartisan congressional consensus that has been Israel's strongest asset in Washington beginning to fracture? Welcome to Connections, the Arab Studies Institute interview program on current events, policy questions, and new ideas. I'm Wayne Rabbani, and for this episode, we're delighted to be speaking with Lara Friedman, who is perhaps best known for her unrivaled knowledge of the role of Congress with respect to Israel and the Palestinians. Lara Friedman is president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace in Washington. She is a leading authority on US foreign policy in the Middle East with particular expertise on the Arab-Israeli conflict, Israeli settlements, Jerusalem, and the role of the US Congress. She has published widely in the US and international press and is regularly consulted by members of Congress and their staff, diplomats, and journalists. Previously with the US State Department, she was a foreign service officer in Jerusalem, Washington, Tunis, and Beirut. Laura Friedman, it's a real pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for having me, happy to be here. Right. Um, to start off, um, many analysts and observers have concluded that the nature of the conversation about Israel and Palestine and DC policy circles has since Trump's departure significantly changed. I'd like to begin by asking you whether you agree with this assessment, and if so, what in your view are the factors that have led to this change? Well, thanks. I, I appreciate the question, and, and again, thanks for having me. Um, it's, a, it's a broad question. I mean, I think fundamentally, you know, what clearly has changed is we have a different kind of administration. We have an administration that ran on, I mean, President Biden ran on a platform of restoring normalcy, sanity, um, you know, normal policymaking and, and good foreign policymaking uh, to the United States. And, and that applied, you know, in his campaign, he, he applied that to Israel-Palestine as well. Um, and, and, you know, where, where it gets complicated is what does that mean? And what does that mean for this administration? Um, and, you know, so far we have seen some shifts. We've seen an end to some of the, you know, just blatant demonization of Palestinians and the, the sort of elevation and um, embrace of a hardline greater Israel agenda, which for the Trump administration became the U.S. agenda. And that's, I think, a positive thing. Uh, where, where it gets, and we've seen things like, you know, uh, a restarting of some, some, some in, not insignificant humanitarian aid uh, for the Palestinians and funding for UNRWA, which had been stuck because Mr. Trump did not want to give any money at all to the Palestinians. So, I mean, there have been some, some concrete changes. Um, whether those are concrete changes, though, that, that together form a shift in U.S. policy, I think it is far too soon to say. The... You know, even before the latest Gaza, um, the latest Gaza war, the question of sort of how serious the shifts were, were they willing to roll back um, some of the profound shifts in terms of using the word occupation, or do you consider the West Bank occupied, and are settlements illegal, or do we even really oppose them, and are we going to spend any political capital challenging them? Um, the question of whether or not this administration is, is genuinely set uh, or, or, or interested in re-engaging Palestinian 
officials, Palestinian, whether it's the PA or the PLO, um, bringing them back to a, an eye-level relationship where they're treated as a quasi-state party. Um, all of that is still, um, it, it, it's still untested. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and I think that we have, um, the indications we've seen so far suggest a very conservative approach that is less about a wholesale rolling back or restoring to status quo ante, which arguably is not a not a bad way to go because status quo ante sucked. That's or that's how we got where we were under the Trump administration. Um, but a, a policy though that is so conservative, it's sort of you know finding things on the margins to do um, to kind of give a semblance of a new policy, which is really the old policy just tweaked a little bit. Yeah, because I mean, if, if we look at the decisions they've taken so far, you mentioned the re-engagement uh, with the Palestinian Authority, um, the resumption of uh, US uh, assistance to the PA, and also funding, for example, for UNRWA, the UN Palestine Refugee Agency. But at the same time, uh, the Biden administration was also clear it would not roll back um, the move of the of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, or effectively the U.S. recognition of uh, Israeli sovereignty over Jerusalem, it was a bit uh, wishy-washy when it came to the Golan Heights. But it, it seems to be um, uh, it seems as if the the big decisions, let's say the most consequential decisions taken by the Trump administration, have been retained, and the changes have been more on you know, let's call them tactical issues. Yeah, look, I, I agree. Look, I, I don't have any personal, I, I can't read the minds, the minds, plural, of the people making policy in this administration. I know some of them, but I, I don't have direct access into their thinking. As an analyst looking at this, it appears, and again, I think there is some logic to this. If they're looking at this and saying, we have limited political capital to spend. We have a lot on our plate from Iran to, you know, the various COVID related crises. You know, there's a, there's a huge amount of stuff on their plate. Um, if they say, well, we don't want to spend political capital on things that aren't going to do any good or that are symbolic or that, you know, are just too expensive. Let's save it for things that are important. But then you think, well, well what is important? I mean, the last Gaza war, the decision to not weigh in for many, many, many days in favor of a ceasefire, which if you ask any Israeli who is watching the Hebrew language news, they will tell you was touted on Israeli news every night as the US is with us in this campaign. Um, that's a strange choice. Um, and I don't know if that is driven by a strategic vision that they have not laid out. And it's uh, if so, we, you know, we don't know what that is. I don't know if it's driven by domestic political calculations, not wanting to fight with Congress or to anger you know, various domestic constituencies. Um, we, we don't know what it is, but it's a very, it, you end up with a very strange, um, a strange policy. And then you see things like the discussion of, you know, reopening the consulate in Jerusalem, right? Which they're talking about, right. which is one of those things that I sort of shake my head and think, all right, you're gonna spend a lot of political capital to do that. But unless you're planning to actually reopen a consulate in Jerusalem where you're going to put the settlements under a consul general, not just the Palestinians, which is something that's going to be a really heavy political capital investment because the Israelis aren't going to be happy about it. Unless you do that, this is actually counterproductive. If you open a new office with some guy, and I, I love Hadi Amr, but you send him out there to just talk to the Palestinians and you leave the settlements under the embassy, you've actually sanctified 
the Trump administration approach of treating settlements as if they're part of Israel. While you're doing you know, this little handout to the Palestinians, the Israelis understand that, the settlers understand that. So what is the point of spending the political capital on that? And, and if, I, if I understand you correctly, you're essentially saying um, the administration didn't want to have to deal with this issue, but then Gaza happened and, uh, and they had to deal with it. So maybe that's a, a good way to go to the next topic, um, to begin to talk about Congress and to ask you, first of all, what you make of the various statements by congressional representatives during last month's events in Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip, which were openly critical of Israel, which is something we hadn't seen um, for many years in Congress. And perhaps not less importantly, the conspicuous silence of some leading senators and congressmen who were usually known for their very vocal support of Israel under such circumstances. Should we see this as a passing storm in a teacup or in your view with something more significant afoot? Look, I, I, don't, I don't have a simple answer for that. Watching how Congress responded to what was happening in Gaza, and actually the responses in Congress started before the actual war with Gaza started. We started hearing members of Congress speaking out when it was Sheikh Jarrah and, and the conflict around there, and then at the Haram al-Sharif Temple Mount and the conflict there. You saw people speaking out. I, I tracked all of this for like, three miserable days where I was tracking every single statement from every member of Congress um, and sort of drawing some conclusions. You know, one, one conclusion I drew is that the conspicuous absence of any comment by the Biden administration created even more pressure on members of Congress to speak out. When you look at members of Congress who are, they're responsible to much smaller constituencies, right? The president has the entire country and can say, well, you know, if you're, if you are Bob Menendez or Chuck Schumer and fine, generally you come out in a very Israel right or wrong sort of place, but you're seeing at the grassroots, your constituents who are watching, you know, images that are you know, images of soldiers in, in the, 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 the Al-Aqsa Mosque, right? You're seeing, you know, images of, of, of you know, multi-story buildings coming down in Gaza, the building that, that housed AP. And there's total silence from the president. I think that actually created both more pressure and more of an opening for members of Congress to weigh in and to weigh in in, in, in what should be a fairly non-controversial way, which is saying, please, for the love of God, push for a ceasefire, right? They weren't even being hypercritical of Israel, but we got to the point where calling for a ceasefire, you know, came, was being treated as, you know, something that was anti-Israel or, or critical of Israel, not anti-Israel, but critical of Israel. So it was, it was a really, it, it was a very strange set of circumstances for sure. Well, speaking of um, becoming critical of Israel, what we then saw as, as events continued to develop, uh, to develop were um, uh, Congress people openly calling for U.S. arms transfers to Israel to be curbed. And I believe a uh, uh, draft resolution was introduced to Congress um, on the score. I, I think um, you would agree that it's unfortunately a, a primarily symbolic initiative that's unlikely to gain significant uh, traction. But my question is whether you nevertheless think the initiative, even if it fails, represents an important moment. Yes, I do think it's, a, it's an important moment. Um, look, this isn't the first time where in the aftermath 
of a Gaza military engagement, there has been a move in Congress to replenish Israel's missile stocks. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's happened before and I think it will happen here again. Mm -hmm. This is the first time I think there's been a real debate about that and about what that looks like and about what sort of oversight there should be on that. And I think some of that debate is because the timing, I mean, to, to sort of come in in this almost brazen way asking for more you know, with a huge new request. I mean, whether it's a billion, one member of Congress is talking about 5 billion. I mean, these are huge amounts of money on top of what we already give Israel and coming in with this request while, you know, Gazans are still burying their dead. Um, I think that the brazenness of it um, and the, the, the size of it made, it made it something that people felt more comfortable commenting on. But I don't, I don't think that's going away. I mean, I, I think this is, this is going to this is going to continue to be a hot button issue. It's also going to continue to be a hot button issue because there are members of Congress who, even before this Gaza engagement, were focusing energies on we need to have accountability on our aid to Israel. Whether we're talking about use restrictions or oversight or conditioning or cuts, all of those things are now in play in the discussion in a way that is unprecedented. I mean, this was a line that really was not crossed except by real sort of outlying voices for, for decades. And that isn't going away. And in parallel, you've got a Republican party, which has decided that whether it's because they truly care about Israel's security or because they um, support Israel because they want the second coming of Christ where all people like me will die in a pool of fire in Armageddon or because they just see this as a potent political weapon that they can use against Democrats you see this issue being taken up every single day as something in Congress to be used in a partisan battle. Um, you saw it again today. Well, on, on that note, um, I'd, I'd like to ask you about several specific pieces of legislation that either are or are intended um, uh, to have a concrete impact on, on US policy towards Israel and the Palestinians. And, Bear in mind, please, that many of our viewers will, uh, may not be familiar uh, with this legislation, but if I can just ask you um, uh, to speak about several specific acts of legislation and, and their importance. Um, let's begin with the Taylor Force Act, which, which you have written about extensively and you have characterized as, 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 as a particularly significant piece of congressional legislation. Uh, so, so the Taylor Force Act, I mean, it's not just me who says it's important. The people who support it says, say it's important. I, I'm not one of the people who thinks it's a good idea. The Taylor Force Act um, was designed to, to, well, let's take a step back. For, for about, I don't know, it started about five or six years ago in Congress. You started to hear a narrative which said the only reason that there is Palestinian terrorism against Israel is because Palestinians pay their terrorists well, right? Because the people who commit acts of terror against Israel who are either put in jail or killed get these huge stipends and their families get rich. So I'm sorry, you're talking now about the final years of the Obama administration. Yes, towards the end of the Obama administration, this became an issue. It had never been an issue before. Mm -hmm. And the argument was that the, the stipends paid to families of what Palestinians call martyrs and prisoners were tantamount to paying Palestinians to commit acts of terror. Now, there are some problems with this argument. 
One being, Palestinians have always had this program, Israel has always known about it and never cared, including that Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails actually have funds transferred into their canteen accounts from the PA so that they can buy things. That's part of the stipend. And, and that's how it's always worked and Israel has always been fine with that. But at some point, someone decided this was a really, really powerful talking point. And, it, and it's a it is a powerful talking point because it, it essentially absolves Israel of any responsibility for any wrong, any, any, any sense of grievance that a Palestinian might have. The argument is because it that becomes paid to slay. Exactly. If Palestinians are, are having any grievances against Israel, they're fake. It's just because they're doing it because of money. And it also ignores the fact that a Palestinian who commits an act of terror against Israel pays a very high price, right? So if you think they get, they get rich, well, you know, the family's home is going to be demolished because Israel engages in collective punishment. Family members are going to be jailed. Work permits, travel permits are going to be lost. I mean, the entire extended family will pay, and sometimes a village will pay an incredibly high price. But the argument is, nope, it's pay to slay. So this legislation caught fire because it's a really fun argument, right? This is really easy. Blame the, blame the Palestinians for everything, done. And it eventually um, took shape in the, in the form of the Taylor Force Act. And under the Taylor Force Act, the US is forbidden from providing any funding that directly benefits the PA or the, well, the PA un, um, unless, the, unless this pay to slay is, 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 um, is gone, unless it's been eliminated. So the PA needs to change its own uh, procedures. Exactly. And it's, and it's very, it's written as directly benefit. It was very conscious. It does not say directly or indirectly, and it doesn't say benefit in general. It says directly benefit. The legislation has four specific exemptions for specific programs that members of Congress thought were so, you know, mom and apple pie that you could fund that. And then it leaves the way you, it, it leaves up to administration to decide what does it mean directly benefit. And if you can say something doesn't directly benefit, then you can provide that funding. And it only applies to ESF, to economic support funds. There's other baskets of funding. Now, that leaves lots of room for an administration to fund the Palestinians with the actual exemptions, with the things that are not directly benefiting and from the other baskets of funding like the money that was used for the COVID aid by the Biden administration at the beginning. The problem is that the Taylor Force Act has been taken up even by people who know what it says in Congress and supported it. And it's been reinterpreted in light of a new administration to say, not one penny. Hmm. Any aid to the Palestinians either is violating the Taylor Force Act or is cynically circumventing it notwithstanding the fact that it was written to leave space for some funding to still flow. And, and sorry, Lara, but you're now talking about how the Trump administration decided to interpret it or Congress? No, I'm talking about how since Trump left, under the Trump I administration, yeah. I mean, for example, with the COVID aid, when Mr. Biden, when President Biden provided um, money, a, a, a tranche of money to help Palestinians with COVID, this is at the beginning of the administration, mm -hmm. he was accused of violating the Taylor Force Act. Now, if you rewind it to last fall, President Trump provided aid for COVID. It was the one time he did something kind of nice for the Palestinians towards the end of his term in office. At the time, Ambassador Friedman praised him on Twitter. This was money that had been you know, appropriated by Congress. He'd been sitting on it and he let it go. Trump sent that same money from that same basket for COVID and was praised for it. Biden now did the same thing, and he's accused of violating Taylor Force. There's right. been an actual reframing of Taylor Force since Biden took office to say, not a penny, not a penny should go. And if you find a way to make a penny go, you're either violating 
the letter of the law or the spirit of the law. Mm-hmm. So that's the Taylor Force Act. And by the way, fix, getting around the Taylor Force Act is not for the for the for the Palestinians is very difficult. The bill is written to make it difficult, right? Essentially, it's saying the Palestinians have to toss their prisoners and martyrs overboard in order to get aid. Yeah, which is which is not an easy thing to do. And I think related to this is um, the Anti-Terrorism Clarification Act. It is and it isn't because that was fixed. Um, and this is, I think, it, it's this is all gets pretty technical. And <laughs> sorry, I'll try to be faster on this one. Anti-terrorism Take clarification time. act. So there's something called the Anti-terrorism Act, which is a big bill to bar USA from getting to terrorists. Um, a few years ago, there was an effort to expand the Anti-terrorism clarification, the Anti-terrorism Act, called the Clarification Act. Um, and the goal of that legislation is to enable U.S. parties to sue the Palestinian Authority and the PLO in US courts. That's the whole purpose of this bill is to get- I'm Sorry, if I can just, just to be clear, th- this act um, deals only with the Palestinians or is it a global piece of legislation? So the ATA is global, but mm-hmm. this is this this narrow part is, is just on the Palestinians. I see. And the, well, actually it's written more broadly, but it ends up, it, the purpose of it was for the, was for the Palestinians. So, you, you have a lawfare industry which seeks to use lawfare, use court cases, lawsuits to bankrupt the PA and the PLO. And, and they're very clear, you know, to, to terrorists and enemies of Israel, right? So you've got people in the US who are either directly victims of or families of victims of terrorist attacks, which is terrible. And they want to hold the PA and the PLO financially directly responsible via lawsuits in US courts. And US courts have ruled you can't do it. Effectively, the PA and the PLO, this is extraterritorial. Yeah, it's a kind of sovereign immunity. They don't have a territorial presence here outside of the diplomatic missions. You can't do it. So the the Anti-Terrorism Clarification Act was written to fix that. And the hook that was initially passed into law was essentially saying, if they accept any aid, then they're accepting so they're accepting the jurisdiction of these courts. But as and this is important on the question of whether Taylor Force is written to say no aid shall flow. Um, once people figured out, like people like Lindsey Graham in Congress figured out that the anti-terrorism the anti-terrorism clarification act was going to stop even basic humanitarian aid, people to people aid, you know, security cooperation, all of that. They said, oh wait, that's not what we meant. And they revised it and they passed an amended version, which still has various hooks to try to force um, jurisdiction, but aid is not one of them. So the, so ACA is no longer relevant in the aid conversation. It right. is still relevant on the question of whether or not you reopen a PLO mission in Washington, because that is one of the hooks in it. If the right. Palestinian Authority agrees to come back and opens an office in Washington, they are under this law accepting jurisdiction. I see. Now, um, uh, there's another piece of legislation which is quite different, which has been introduced by Representative uh, Betsy McCollum, which I think is specifically relating to the human rights of of Palestinian children. And it's been um, on the agenda for a while. So so Congresswoman McCollum has introduced, um, I think this is the third iteration of legislation aimed at um, protecting the, the rights and, and preventing the human rights violations against Palestinian children. Um, and, and each iteration has been different. The current iteration, which caused quite a bit of excitement, actually includes language saying that, you know, no USAID shall be used for X. And, and that's important. It's a powerful statement. 
the what I have tried to get people to focus on is that sort of statement is basically aspirational. It is merely aspirational unless it is tied to a or this will happen, right? You have right. to have something that that implements it, an executive clause. Um, this bill is not going to be passed into law anyway, so it's maybe um, neither here nor there whether it has an executive clause, but it doesn't. Um, right. it, it sounds like it's saying no aid shall flow, but if there's nothing to actually stop the aid flowing, then it, is, it doesn't actually do anything. But it sets a really important marker, and it, it got much broader support than I think people thought it would. And I think it's part of this shifting conversation that we're seeing in Congress right now, where you really can have a conversation about, you know, the future of USAID and, and whether or not it should be somehow reimagined. Right. And um, one thing that you've you've um, uh, written about recently, and, and I would urge viewers to also um, consult your website at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, because you regularly offer very um, uh, detailed descriptions and analysis of, of congressional uh, legislation is, um, if I've understood you correctly, you're basically saying that there are forces in Congress that are seeking to redirect humanitarian assistance um, to the Gaza Strip to, um, uh, to Israel in order to replenish Iron Dome. Is, is, is that the gist of this legislation? Yeah, there, there's bills now in both the House and the Senate. Um, and look, I mean, these are, these are grandstanding bills, right? Mm -hmm. Iron Dome is going to be replenished because it's going to be replenished. What this is, the, increasingly, I, I tweeted something about it today, you know, historically in Congress, even among the most ardent Israel right or wrong sort of people, you always maintain, <laughs> people always maintained at least a pretense mm -hmm. of not hating the Palestinian people and not seeking to inflict misery on Palestinian civilians. There was a concept, even if you hated the leadership and you maybe you hated you know, who they voted for, whatever, that you weren't trying to immiserate civilians and punish civilians. In the current political context, that pretense has been dispensed with. So you have two pieces of legislation basically saying, unless you can essentially prove that, you know, not a, not a let's see, Senator Menendez had a great line on the Senate floor yesterday, pushing back against a piece of legislation like this. It's a piece of, of legislation. Of all people. Sorry, yes, of all people. It was a piece of legislation introduced, um, a Senator, um, Senator from Florida, Scott tried to push this through very quickly called hotlining it. Um, and it basically would bar any aid to Gaza from any account, including UN accounts through any NGOs, whatever, unless you could prove that nobody who had ever sat on a bus next to someone related to someone who knew someone in Hamas um, who was not gonna benefit from that aid. You couldn't give any aid unless. And he basically said, as written, this is saying that you cannot help people with water unless you can prove that no, no one who is associated with, with Hamas will ever drink that water or ever use a faucet that carries that water. That's sort of where we're going with this. And these Iron Dome bills are basically almost in a insult to injury. It's like, not only are we going to bar the aid to you unless you can prove the negative, which is not, not a single person who might in their heart have sympathy for Hamas ever benefits, but we're going to redirect it to the people shooting rockets at us, shoot, shooting bombs at you. Um, again, it, it's as if the pretense of any humanitarian concern or any any 
view of treating the Palestinians on the ground as human beings um, is gone. Now, um, one thing that really struck me in, in, in your writings about congressional, congressional legislation and, and your um, summaries of them on, on your organization's website is how often um, substantial statements about US policy uh, towards the Palestine question are included into bills and acts of legislation that have nothing to do with this issue. I think um, there's the example of a bill concerning China um, and, and others. Uh, and is this a very routine practice? I mean, it, it's not new. I mean, and part of it is the way that legislation gets passed where very few laws actually go to a vote, right? Congress is busy, they've got a lot of business. So when you actually have a bill that's going to likely get passed and go to the president, people try to hang a lot of Christmas ornaments on it. That, that's standard. Um, but you, you have something I think a little bit different here, which is because the partisan value of bringing Israel-Palestine into it is so high, right? So today you had a vote in the House on repealing the Iraq war authorization of use of force, right? Which all, almost all Republicans were gonna vote against anyway. They don't approve of it. And at the last minute, a Congressman from Mexico, a senior on the House Foreign Affairs Committee offered what's called a motion to recommit, which is a gambit where you offer an amendment on the floor that if accepted, sends this back to committee and has to go through a whole long process before it comes back to a vote. Yeah. And if you do that, that's a way of hijacking the bill. But the motion to recommit he offered was to add to it some language related to Israel. It's actually language that was passed by the House last year, language which is incredibly problematic and passed with no discussion, it was bipartisan, but he wanted to hang it on this bill without any discussion at all and then when, when Democrats refuse to allow him to send the bill back to committee, he accuses them of being anti-Israel. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's really quite elegant. Mm -hmm. um, we saw this a week ago with, again, an Iron Dome related amendment. The, these efforts aren't really about getting the language passed. It's about getting more ammunition to say the, that we're pro-Israel and they're not, um, mm -hmm. when you're gonna oppose the underlying bill anyway. What so, happened on, but what happened on the China bill is even more insidious than that, because that actually made it into the bill and it, it may make it into law. And this is the Endless Frontiers Act, which is this big China bill that just passed in the Senate. And when that was in the Senate, um, in, in committee, Senator Cruz added an amendment, which is basically an anti-BDS amendment. And it's actually not even an anti-BDS amendment. It's an anti-differentiation amendment. The purpose of this amendment is to, co to, to coerce other countries into treating settlements as part of Israel. And, it, and if, it, if I could just interrupt, differentiation yeah. is, is the principle that governments, as mandated by the Security Council um, in 2016, um, uh, need to treat the West Bank and particularly um, settlements in occupied territory different than um, territory within Israel's boundaries. Exactly, exactly. And, and you've got to hear, you know, we're talking about the role of Congress and how legislation shapes US policy. In the Obama era, when differentiation first became a serious issue, when the, the, the European Union had issued a statement on it, and it, it, it became something that Israel was very concerned about, Congress adopted a very Israeli framing, which said, 
differentiating between Israel and settlements is exactly the same as boycotting Israel and both of them are anti-Semitic and have to be stopped. And under Obama, uh, two pieces of legislation were passed. Obama signed them both, having to do with trade relations, that defined boycott of Israel to include differentiation. Two pieces of legislation that are largely inconsequential in terms of how they're being used. But at the time, people like me warned, okay, this is a problem. Once you put this definition into law, it's going to come back and haunt us. Right. And what Senator Cruz put into the China bill is that definition. So he basically has included in it, there's a section of the bill about international cooperation under the National Science Foundation, and it essentially bars the president from engaging in this cooperative structure that's being authorized and funded. It bars him from including any countries that boycott Israel using the definition passed under Obama, which has nothing to do with boycotting Israel. It's about, it's about whether or not you treat settlements as part of Israel. And it's insidious because nobody wants to challenge that. Mm. A, because if you look how long it's taken me to explain this, mm. the amount of time it takes me to explain this, people say, ah, you're anti-Israel. This is the same as boycotting. We're done. I don't care. What, don't, don't give me all your nuance. And B, this was passed into law under Obama. Mm. So Dems don't have a leg to stand on opposing it. Even Dems who at the time said, well, this is terrible, but we, we don't think it's consequential, so we'll ignore it. Okay, it's too late now. Here it is. Right. Um, my expectation is you're going to see stuff like this hung on every possible bill they can find to hang it on. Nevertheless, um, Laura, I think some people listening to you will say, well, um, a lot of this legislation is really terrible, but given that it's being driven increasingly by party political considerations, by partisan considerations, that's kind of a silver lining because it could be taken as a signal that the bipartisan consensus, which has been so well established in, in Washington and which has been such a mainstay of support for Israel is beginning to fracture. Or do you think that's an overstatement? I think it is true. I don't think it's an overstatement, but I also don't think you should understate how strong the currents are that are negative. So on the positive side, we have unprecedented energies that are pushing in favor of a more constructive, accountable policy towards Israel and how it treats the Palestinians. And I don't see that going away. On the other hand, things like Cruz's amendments, I mean, it's going to take a lot of political capital to get that out. And I don't see the House doing it. I mean, maybe somebody makes it miraculously disappear in conference, but but it won't happen easily, it'll be expensive in political capital. And again, Obama supported it. The amendment that was being pushed on the floor today in the motion to recommit, the language he's trying to introduce is terrible. It basically is language that was stuck in the National Defense Authorization Act last year in the House under Trump, which was mind boggling because Democrats supported it. And it's language that aside from all of the normal appropriations and normal weapon systems we give Israel, it would basically be a blank check for the president, based on the president's judgment with no oversight from Congress to give Israel any weapons systems or any military uh, supplies that the president deemed were important for, his, for Israel, notwithstanding any other provision of law, no oversight, and all they have to do is report to Congress retrospectively on what they did when it's convenient. They're like, that's incredible. And, and 
you can say it's partisan, but as McCall said on the floor today, this was passed last year in a bipartisan manner, unanimously by Congress. So it's, a, it's bipartisan. Uh, it gets a little harder. Right. Um, finally, Laura, I'd, I'd like to ask you a more general question, which is um, where you see the Biden administration going in the coming period. We talked at the beginning about how this is not something the White House wanted to deal with. It had all the domestic challenges. It's um, preoccupied with the Iranian nuclear agreement. But then you had Jerusalem, Gaza, and so on. Um, should we expect um, uh, the Biden administration to basically sit back and hope this issue goes away? Um, or do you see them taking a different approach? Uh, where do you see things heading? So I hate the crystal ball questions and it's only fair that you pose it because I pose it to everyone I interview. Um, and, and sorry, if I may, um, particularly now with this um, uh, new government Israel, which you know may last days or weeks or months, um, but some people have said, well, it's much weaker and more susceptible to international pressure. Others are saying it's the perfect fig leaf to pretend Netanyahu's departure has solved um, uh, many of the issues. Yeah, so I think this administration, based on what we've seen so far, mm -hmm. would prefer to not spend energy and political capital on Israel-Palestine, would rather find some places to work on this in the margins where they can say, look, we're, 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 we're doing our best, we're doing good, how do you want out again, we're, but not really do anything. And I think part of that is that they don't see an opportunity to actually move the ball forward significantly and absent the opportunity, if they don't view that there's a victory on the horizon, why should they spend political capital doing much? Which by the way is how Europe has looked at this for years. Um, which, yeah, maybe they're right. I mean, these are political calculations. And by the way, already the thinking is gonna be midterm elections, right? And then the next presidential election cycle. So that always hangs over this. And Republicans have made clear, they're going to capitalize on and exploit this issue to the absolute utmost they can for both midterms and, and presidential elections. The, the problem for, of, of just sort of trying to manage this and, and engage on the margins is that this is not static. And mm -hmm. things, you know, my, my colleague, Danny Seidemann says, you can engage in preventive medicine or you can engage in, in trauma room medicine, pick one, because you're gonna engage. Right. Um, and that's what we saw a little bit with, with Gaza. Um, you know, with a new administration or new government in Israel, in addition to the two scenarios you lay out, the third scenario is that, you know, the, this administration will hear from its friends in this new government, you need to lay off and not pressure us, we're fragile. If we break, it's going to be much worse, just please and lay off. Yeah, we'll come back. Yeah, or, or worse. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's hard to see that as being a real force for, for anything being a lot better. But Look, I think administrations can surprise you. I, I still hope to be surprised. I don't write anybody off. Um, I will say that you know the fact that this this new government in Israel is so fragile and so carefully balanced. The, the news today was that at least so far they seem it seems like they're going to be unable to renew the legislation that bars Palestinians from bringing their spouses in. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone thought about that before the election. That's a pretty significant shift if we get out of this new government an inability to continue with what is an openly racist demographic engineering policy, which con which contradicts even the minimal commitment to democracy and the rights of Palestinian citizens of Israel. That's pretty significant. 
It was, um, and this being the result of a parliamentary deadlock, if I yeah. it correctly. So yeah. I don't think it's impossible that there's, there's things that could surprise us. I worry, though, I worry that this administration is so busy with so many other things and so clearly has decided there is not a chance for for a big win on Israel-Palestine, that they're going to continue to try to manage this. Mm -hmm. And, and and you know, we saw with Gaza, things just really get worse and worse. And whether it's you, whether you support two-state solution or rights-based, you know, approach or whatever, you know, Absent real engagement, things get worse for Palestinians, full stop. And Congress, unfortunately, even with the new countervailing winds that we have, which are important, Congress, it's sort of like when you look at the, who's it, I was looking last night at the, at the uh, generational makeup of Congress, and it's exciting. There's a lot more Gen X like me, and there's a lot more, you know, next generation millennials. But the majority in both houses of Congress are still boomers and the generation pre-boomer. We're really old and they're still driving the policy and it's still that way when it comes to israel palestine it's the previous generations that are still really shaping and driving the policy for how much longer we'll see uh, laura friedman uh president of the foundation for middle east peace in washington dc uh thank you very much for taking the time uh to speak with us thanks for having me